Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel podcast. Make sure to check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. Now, we hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Morgan. I thank God for all the, the new music that we're able to worship and enjoy together. I thank, you, I thank God for the creativity and energy that a, a lot of the new music brings to us, but I'm awfully grateful for and really appreciate the, the history of music in the church and the hymns help us remember that and ground us in the faith, in the history of our faith as well. So I thank you for that great selection of songs that we were able to sing this morning. And I thank, I thank you for how joyfully and energetically you sang this morning as well. So we're reading in the book of Revelation and God promises to bless those that read uh, the book of Revelation. And if we take the time to wrestle with very difficult passages, there's a blessing and encouragement that comes to our lives as well. And I'm really clinging to that promise today because the two chapters I want us to look at, I have to admit, are very sad and very sobering. You talk about being a Debbie Downer. That's what I kind of feel like these two chapters are really all about because they're talking about the fact that, that God doesn't allow any rivals and he fights against anything that's a rival in our lives and so we're going to read about the judgment that Christ brings against any form of idolatry in our lives and in our worlds and we're reading today in Revelations chapters 8 and 9 and I encourage you to turn there in your Bible and follow along. It starts on page 1032. 1032, Revelation chapter eight and nine. You know, the, the book of Revelation is about who's first. Who, who is in most preeminent position? And we're going to see as, as the book of Revelation unfolds that Jesus ultimately is the one who wins. Just when you think evil is going to triumph and Satan is going to have his way and the world systems and dictatorships and, and nations that are arrayed against God, just when you think that they're going to win, they don't. Jesus Christ conquers them all. He overcomes them all and he sets up his kingdom and he rules for all eternity as King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus wins. And as we're reading in Revelation, we're seeing that there's a battle going on for who wins in our lives individually, personally. Who's on the throne of your life? Who's at the steering wheel of your life? Who's in charge? Whose foot is on the accelerator? You or God? Some other God, or is it the true and living God who created all that there is? Who's in control? Who's worthy of your love? Who's worthy of your worship? Who's worthy of your ultimate loyalty and devotion? Who is it? And in Revelation chapter eight and nine, we see this battle for who's to be worshiped, who's to be loved and served. We see that battle unfolding. In Revelation chapter eight and nine, the, the, the context is, is, if you remember, in chapter six and seven, we saw Jesus being handed a large scroll. The scroll was an ancient book that has God's plan for the future written upon it. 
And as Jesus opens the seals that have clamped this scroll shut, one by one as he breaks these seals, the scroll unrolls further and further. And finally, he comes to the very last seal in verse one of chapter eight, and he opens that. And as he opens that, the plan of God is now fully unrolled and all the different components of it are beginning to be executed here on planet Earth. And each one of those scrolls, each one of those seals of the scroll had a different form of judgment or consequence that occurred as the plan of God was unfolding. When we get to the seventh seal, which we read in verse one of chapter eight, we hear these words, the lamb opened the seventh seal and there was silence in heaven for a half an hour. And we talked about last time that maybe that was a dramatic pause. Maybe it was the idea of, you know, kind of like the, the pause right before the great crescendo and finish of this divine orchestra of judgment. Now, whatever it might be, you know, the, the, the pause, the intermission before the final act, it certainly involves God pausing and listening and hearing the prayers of his saints. And in response to the prayers of his saints, of the people who have been persecuted by this world system, this antichrist system that's against God and his people, God is bringing his judgment and he's going to vindicate these folks and set them free. In the process of that seal, that last seal being opened, a group of angels are called forward. They're each given a, a metal trumpet and they're to blow the trumpets. And as they blow the trumpets, several things are happening. There's a call to battle. There's a call to worship. And there's a call that's a warning. A, an alarm is sounded. And you and I need to listen very carefully to the call of these trumpets so that we can deal with the idolatry that we have in our hearts as well, so that Jesus Christ can be King of kings and Lord of lords inside each and every one of us. You see, John Calvin said long ago, the great reformer, he said that the human heart is an idol factory. Idol, I-D-O-L, not I-D-L-E, you know, lazy. But, you know, an idol factory, that there are gods and goddesses that we worship, and our own hearts find things for us to worship. Create things to worship. And you may say, but I don't have a Buddha sitting in my yard. I don't have a little figure of some you know, saint or some other person that I'm venerating and bowing down and burning incense to or offering sacrifices to. When I visited Vietnam, I saw idols all over the place. When you go to Asian restaurants, you often see idols. When you travel in other countries, you see idols. You can see that. But you know, here in America, there are lots of idols as well. We, we do. We have things that we worship, things that we're loyal to, things that we trust in, things that we, we, we rely on for our security and happiness. It might be money, it might be pleasure, it might be popularity, it might be our education, it might be our military might, it might be our freedom to do whatever we want to do and have no one tell us what to do. Those are all idols that we worship. And I know that there are idols in my life that when somebody tries to take those things away from me, I get really mad. I feel really crushed or hurt when those things are removed. Some of us have made our children our idols. Some of us have made our parents our idols. And we care most of all what happens about those things because we think having those people or those possessions in our lives, that that's where we find security. That's where we get happiness. That's where we find joy.
And if those things are removed, we're absolutely crushed. Jesus Christ wants you and I to know that he fights to be first in our lives. And Revelation chapters 8 and 9 remind us of that. That he is fighting to be first place in our lives. That we would love him and serve him before anyone and anything else. So let's read through here. This is a a very important section of scripture. It's a heavy, dense narrative. And I'd like you to follow along. And I want you to notice just how the first trumpet, as the trumpets sound, it's really a call to battle as well. It says that when that, there was that silence in verse two, it says, then I saw seven angels stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense and the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth and there were peals of thunder and rumblings and flashes of lightning and an earthquake." So as all this is set up, before the trumpets even blow, John is seeing a vision of why these trumpets are going to blow, why these judgments are going to be announced, why Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, is fighting against idolatry and making a war against the gods and goddesses of this world. It's because of the saints of God. It's because of the people of God who belong to him. The martyrs who have lost their lives living for Christ, having been persecuted and martyred by the the world kingdoms that are set up against God. And so we had read back in chapter six of the, the people there at the throne of God by the altar praying for justice and praying for vindication and vengeance. God, they were asking God to, to fight against and conquer their enemies who had killed them. And Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, said, wait a little bit. Vengeance is coming. Now we see the vengeance taking place. So when these angels are handed their trumpets, there's another angel that's focused there and he's picking up this censer, which is like a golden bowl, a pan, And they would take charcoal off the altar and and put it in that pan and hold it. And then they would sprinkle incense upon the top and this this powder would burn in the the charcoal and it would create a fragrance. If you've ever been to a Roman Catholic church or another worship type of service, maybe you've smelled the incense or seen the smoke when the priest would wave a censer around the altar during different parts of the service. That's the picture that we have here of this angel acting like a priest And he's taking, like for charcoal, the prayers of God's people. And he's adding this incense. And it's creating this smoke and it's creating this fragrance. John is multi-sensory in his description of the throne room of God. Not just lights flashing and not just thunders booming, but the smoke and this incense as well, the fragrance of it all. And it's a reminder that that smell is constantly before God, that aroma is constantly before God, and God is constantly aware of the prayers of his people. What have they prayed for? They've prayed for justice. What have they prayed for? They've prayed for vengeance. What have they prayed for? They've prayed for vindication. And God is giving it to them. Because notice in verse 5, what happens? That priestly angel becomes a judging angel. 
And he takes that censer and he adds more fire to it. And he takes the whole thing and he throws it down upon the earth. He's throwing fire of God's judgment upon the earth. And that's what we see unfolding as the seven trumpets begin to blow. Now you might be surprised, why is God so concerned about avenging his people? Why does he care about revenge? I thought we were told not to take revenge. Jesus said we're supposed to turn the other cheek. We're supposed to love our enemies. We're supposed to forgive those who persecute us and bless those who curse us. How come he's so concerned about getting revenge and seeking justice here? God understands that if you and I are willing to trust him with the justice that we need and we all have that longing, the people who've abused us, assaulted us, hurt us, hurted us in some way, the people who have persecuted us, we, we need justice. We want justice. And when we give that to him, when we surrender our right to revenge to him, then God will make everything right. God will take care and settle the score and make everything that's broken. He'll mend it. Everything that's upside down, he'll turn it right side up. He'll settle the score. Justice will prevail. And when he does that, and while he does that, we now have the freedom to actually love our enemies. And we can forgive. We may even have compassion and pity and show mercy to our enemies because we know God is one day going to lower the boom on them and bring about his vindication and his justice of us. So this is why God is bringing this judgment because he's going to avenge his people and set them free. When we read through chapter 8 and chapter 9, this sounds an awful lot like a rerun of the Exodus. The, the, the plagues in ancient Egypt where the children of Israel were held in bondage for 400 years. Do you remember how God set the people free? When Moses went and sought Pharaoh to release the people, the Israelites free and Pharaoh stubbornly, the king of Egypt stubbornly refused to do that and would not let the Israelites go. What did God have to do? He had to send 10 horrifying plagues, terrible plagues and struck the Egyptians in that way. And as God did that, finally, after it climaxed with the death of the firstborn of the children of, of Egypt, the firstborn sons, then God finally let, finally had, had pressured Pharaoh enough that Pharaoh let the Israelites go. There were frogs everywhere. There were lice everywhere. The locusts came and devoured everything in the, of their crops. The Nile River turned to blood. All these horrible things, terrible darkness, lice, all this pressure, hail that destroyed everything. All these horrible judgments. Then God finally was able to secure the release of the people of Israel from, from Egypt. The plagues that we're going to read in chapter 8 and 9 mirror, they're almost like reruns of these plagues. It's almost like a new Passover, a new exodus as God sets his people free, the people who have been martyred for Christ. He vindicates them as well. Now in verse 6, it says that the seven angels prepared to blow them, blow their trumpets and in verse 7 it says, The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth, 
and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and the spring, on the springs of water. And the name of the star is Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it became bitter. And the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. These first four trumpet blasts usher in catastrophic natural disasters that come across the planet, not just localized in one area, but something that's planet-wide, bringing great disasters, things that people worship, things that people depend upon, things that people rely upon for their comfort, their security, their provision for their daily lives, God starts taking those things away. And so there's this hail and fire and blood that's thrown on the earth and, and the vegetation is destroyed. Plants are destroyed. Fruits and vegetables, orchards are destroyed. The for, you and I have seen horrible forest fires in California. But we're talking about things that are destroying the, the forests of the Amazon and the Congo, Yosemite, uh, Yellowstone, these massive forests that are on the earth being destroyed by horrible fires and the orchards and crops, cows, goats, other animals that we rely upon for food, they're, they're dying because there's not enough food for them. The grasses are destroyed. Um, a great star, uh, a second catastrophe, a great mountain, maybe a volcano, burns with fire. It's, it collapses into the sea and is thrown there. And the sea, a third of it's turned to blood. Uh, marine life dies. Aquatic life and vegetation dies. There's, there's massive kills of, of animal life in the seas. And not only that, but even ships are destroyed and and, and seafaring lanes and, and commercial lanes of travel in the ocean are destroyed as well. And so there's not the trade and there's not the, the, the ability to, to export and deliver and, and transport cargo. Food supplies are destroyed. A giant star falls from heaven. Maybe a meteorite or an asteroid or, or a comet crashes upon the earth. And this time, instead of the ocean waters being harmed, it's all the fresh water. The lakes, the springs, the rivers are damaged by this falling star. And it's called wormwood because it actually poisons the water. It makes them bitter. And people die from the contaminants that are now in the water supply. And so there's a shortage of clean water to drink and for agriculture and for bathing. All these things are destroyed and life is getting harder and more difficult and more painful upon the earth because of these natural disasters. And then finally it says that there, there was even something that struck our sun and moon and stars. And life just gets darker and drearier because of these natural disasters in the heavens as well. All these things are just natural disasters. They're like the opening salvo and God judging 
the idols that we worship, all the things that we depend upon, all the things that we value and venerate, they're being taken away because we need to love God and serve God most of all and God is trying to get the attention of people on planet earth. You say, oh, these, these judgments are so hard and I just want to say to you, which what I think John would say, you ain't seen nothing yet. In verse 13, John says that he looked and he heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets and the three angels are about to blow. It's going to get even worse. This warning of doom, this warning of judgment and calamity that's about to befall planet earth. You think these natural disasters are horrible? You just wait and see something even worse is coming. And the fact that it's amplified three times for emphasis. This is horrific dangers like Earth's history has never shown. These terrible disasters are about to befall. Because what was first natural disasters, there's now warfare on a truly worldwide scale. It's absolutely, utterly destructive of the human race. Tremendous suffering and turmoil. In verse, nine, cha- verse 1 of chapter 9, the fifth angel blows his trumpet. And John says, I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with smoke from the shaft. And then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. And they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Yeah, I know it sounds like a horror movie, doesn't it? They're the most fantastic mythological creatures that you can imagine. These, these locusts that are on steroids. In fact, they're not just locusts. They're, they're actually demon-possessed locusts. They're, they're coming up out of a pit. We don't know where the pit's located, but this star, this creature, he's given great authority. He's given the key to open the door of this bottomless pit, and out comes smoke, heavy smoke. And out of the smoke come these locusts that are some kind of a hybrid between a locust that eats vegetation and scorpions that sting people. I think the star is probably Satan. And the reason why is because it is, as it describes the star, this person that falls out of heaven to earth, we read in Isaiah chapter 14 of Lucifer, the son of the morning, falling, being cast out of heaven, falling to the earth because he exalted himself up to be like God. Now the Isaiah 14 passage is specifically talking about the king of Babylon. Look how exalted this man is, but God is going to strike him down. He thinks he's a great leader. He thinks he's so powerful. He thinks he can do whatever he wants, but God is going to strike him down. And it's very clearly that that's the primary reference in that passage, that God is going to judge the king of Babylon. 
But there's this underlying secondary reference that there's some kind of power, there's some kind of force that's animating this king. And that's why many Bible scholars believe that that Lucifer is not so much the king as it is Satan himself that's animating the king, that is motivating the king to do what he's doing. And so there's this this picture of this fallen star this fallen angel coming to earth and he's given keys by God to open the pit and release this smoke and release these terrifying locusts. You might be thinking, wait, 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 wait. Why in the world would God give keys to Satan? That doesn't sound too smart on God's part. I'd keep those keys as far away from him as possible. Do you know what? Do you know how God judges evil? With more evil. That's often what God has done in history. Have you ever noticed that? That there's one terrible kingdom and an even more terrible kingdom comes and judges them. And sometimes an even more horrifically evil kingdom comes and judges them. And finally, good is going to overcome evil. Jesus and his kingdom and his army will finally conquer evil once and for all. Evil will be overcome with God's good. There's no question about that. But in the meantime, God is often using human forces of evil to restrain other evil to put other evil down and put it in its place. And I think this is a case where we see God giving the key to Satan to be able to release the smoke out of the pit and the smoke becoming locusts that are actually locusts and scorpions together and these creatures then tormenting the people of earth who've rejected God and refused to receive his seal. And we read about that in chapter 9 where God marked people that belonged to him, people who had trusted Christ, people following Christ. They were sealed with God's seal and they were protected and they were loved because they belonged to God. And here God is judging everyone who has rejected him. You see, you can't stand in the middle. You're either on God's side or you're not. All of history, it's like that. We think that I don't have to be fully on the devil's side. I don't have to fully be on God's side. I can just kind of walk the middle line here. And there is no middle line. you either for him or against him. And Jesus wants your total loyalty. And he will fight to be first place in your life. And that's what he's doing here is he fights against the idols and human pride that people worship. And so these these locusts that are like scorpions, they don't eat grass, but they sting people. And they can't kill them. They can just torment them. And people are so in pain from the suffering of these things that they actually want to die. They think that that's the only relief that they can have. And yet it says that death will even run away from them. And they can't die. I actually believe that this is an act of God's mercy. God's giving folks the opportunity to repent. He doesn't just destroy them. He gives them the opportunity to repent and come back to him, but they reject it. Now, the locusts are described in verses 7 through 11, and you can see the fantastic description here. They looked like horses, and on their heads there were crowns of gold, and their faces were human faces, hair like women's hair, teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like the breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions and their power to hurt people for five, five months is in their tails. And they have a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. 
His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he's called Apollyon. Abaddon means destroyer, and, and Apollyon means destruction. It's personified. And that's really all the devil does. That's really all that these demons, these, these locusts and scorpions want to do. They just want to destroy. You see, the devil hates everything created in the image of God. Everything that's good and right and true. Everything that looks like God and bears God's mark. He hates it and he fights against it and he destroys it. And the mockery here, the irony here in this passage is people are worshiping idols and they're worshiping demons and they're worshiping everything else except God, their creator. And God uses those demons that are behind all those idols Behind all those false religions animating them, he takes those very demons and they persecute their followers. They torment the people that worship them. They're getting their just desserts in that way. You think that's bad. The warfare gets even worse because Jesus fights for first place in our lives. Verse 12, it says, the first woe is past. Behold, two, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been, who had been prepared for, that, for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. And the number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. And by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads and by means of them they wound. The picture here is that John sees the warfare intensifying. It's not just natural disasters. It's not just these locust scorpions plaguing all of humanity and torturing them in this way. But now he's actually sending out another grand army, an army of 200,000 cavalry riders, 200 million, excuse me, cavalry riders, marching out, riding out, racing out, galloping out in order to actually kill people and destroy them. The picture here is that they're on the eastern boundary of the Roman Empire, the Euphrates River, where modern-day Iraq is. And that river was the boundary between Roman, the Roman Empire and the Parthian Empire. And the Parthians and the Romans were in a Cold War status with one another. They, they really weren't strong enough to conquer each other, but they hated each other, and sometimes the Romans would fight them and win, and sometimes the Parthians would fight them and win, and it just went back and forth, and that river in Iraq, the Euphrates, was the boundary between the two kingdoms. The Parthians were known as great cavalry riders, and they wore long hair, and they had actually developed a form of, of warfare where they would ride horseback, and they could control the horse with their knees, and they could turn backwards and actually shoot an arrow with a bow riding backwards. And uh, the, the Romans would often chase them up mountainsides, 
And the Parthians would just turn around as they're racing up and escaping and they would shoot. And Rome lost several legions because of that until they finally learned don't chase Parthians up mountains. Don't do that. It's very dangerous. The Parthians were feared enemies. They were feared invaders. They were the great foe of Rome and they, would be a, they are a vivid picture of this supernatural demonic invasion that's coming upon planet Earth. People worry about UFOs and motherships lurking behind the moon and waiting to invade Earth and all that kind of stuff. Well, there is an invasion coming. The invasion is a demonic invasion. And these riders are going to come and they will actually kill people. You see, the locust just tormented. The locust tortured. The scorpion locust tortured the people and gave them great suffering for five months. But these riders... They're coming and they're actually trying to kill humans. People that don't have the mark of God upon their head. The people that haven't been sealed or belong to God. They're the ones that are the victims. They're the ones that are, that are going to fall prey to these, these, this demonic cavalry that's going to ride against them. And there's debate among the scholars whether this is a human army that's been animated by demons or whether it's actually demons themselves. I don't know, but the way it's described, it's terrifying. It kind of sounds like a creature from Greek mythology called a chimera or chimera. And it was the, the body of a goat with the head of a lion. And sometimes there'd be a goat head sticking out the back too. And it had a long tail that was actually the head of a snake. And this was just, yeah, it's kind of gross. And that's almost how these riders are described. It's, it's a horror movie on steroids. <laughs> it's really terrifying. And I think that what John is just trying to get across is he's describing this vision that he's had of God sending this, waging this war against human idolatry, waging this war against human pride. He starts off by saying, well, God is going to take away all the things that we depend upon for life and protection and sustenance and happiness. All these natural calamities are going to wreck life on earth. And then when there's a refusal to repent and turn to God from that, I'm going to, I'm going to send pain. I'm going to send suffering. I'm going to unleash these demonic locusts and scorpions. And they're going to torture people. Only for five months there's a limitation. So that people could repent and turn to him. But when there's a refusal to repent and turn to him, I'm going to finally send my cavalry out. And they're going to ride and they're going to kill. And nearly a third of the human population will be destroyed. I gotta admit that this is so discouraging and so sad. It's so terrifying. Let's be honest about that. This isn't something, I don't hear any of you saying amen, and that's good. I agree with that. But it is what God is planning to do. And the tragedy of it all is that there's a refusal, a refusal for humans to repent. Look at verses 20 and 21. The rest of humankind who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. In other words, that's what I say. What? Can't you get the message? 
That God wants total devotion to him? That God wants your ultimate loyalty? That he wants your full love? He wants you to surrender? He wants you to turn away from what you're worshiping? He wants you to turn away from the demons that you're serving? He wants you to turn away from your idols and turn to him. He's your creator. He's your judge. Surrender to him. But there's a refusal. There's unwillingness to do that. Now, when I read this, I go, God, why do you have to be so harsh? This is really awful. And how come you keep turning up the intensity? Are you taking pleasure in this? Do you like this? Are you getting your jollies from this? The answer is no. The problem is is that you and I do not realize the severity of sin. We're embarrassed when we get caught sinning, but embarrassment is nothing. We're ashamed when we're caught sinning. We maybe got punished or spanked when we sinned as a kid, but that's nothing compared to what's going on here. You see, just as each of these plagues mirrors and is a rerun of the plagues of Egypt, why did God have to send all 10 of the plagues to set the Israelites free from their slavery in Egypt. It's because of the stubbornness of the Egyptians, the pride of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. He was unwilling to surrender. There's a little bit of Pharaoh inside every one of us. Every one of us. And unless God is willing, unless God steps in and sets us free from that pride and that bondage, we will never be able to surrender to him and yield to him. You see, the trumpet blasts announce the fact that God is going to war against idolatry and human pride. And we see these catastrophes and all this warfare unfolding in chapter 8 and chapter 9 of Jesus Christ fighting for first place in, in the life of the human race. And we see the human race refusing to do that. There's something else these trumpets do. These trumpets not only sound a call to battle, but they also sound a call to worship. And for people reading this passage and for the people witnessing these passage, the, the, the unfolding of these plagues and these events, they should hear something else. It's not just a call to battle, but it's actually a call to worship because instead of rebelling against God, we should repent and turn to God. You see, at the temple where God was worshiped in ancient Israel, there were times during the day when the trumpets were blown and it was part of the religious ceremony, the liturgy, of the temple worship. And it was a reminder, just like God came down on top of Mount Sinai and there was a loud trumpet blast that announced God's arrival, God bringing his law, God calling human beings into a covenant relationship with him. Those trumpet blasts at the temple would be a reminder to surrender to God and yield to him. It was a call to worship. God is just being God and we're to worship him. In this passage, you see God's sovereignty. You see, God in sovereign control, he calls the angels forth. He gives them the trumpets. He tells the angel to throw the censer down. He gives the key to the star. He does all these things, and he is working it all out according to his plan. These are not the plans hatched in some bunker by some dictator. These are not accidentally unfolding. 
It is God's sovereign plan that's unfolding in human history as he brings his judgment against evil and wickedness. Not only is it a revelation of God's sovereign plan, but it's also revealing to us the fact that he is so powerful and that he is able to overcome everything that is wicked in his path. He can judge it and destroy it and condemn it because he controls all of nature. The forces of nature that we have to serve, God controls them. The demonic and angelic realm, God controls them. The stars, the moon, the sun itself, they are all under his control and he has tremendous power. Not only does he have tremendous power, not only is he in sovereign control, but he is holy. He has a standard. He defines what is right and what is wrong. And he expects us to trust him and obey him and serve him and do his will. And when we don't, there's judgment. He defines what's broken. He defines what's diseased. And he's the one that can cure it and make it whole and mend it and make it right. He's the one who does that. He is also the one who shows his compassion. Believe it or not, as these judgments are unfolding, you see the compassion of God. You might be saying, Pastor, I'm not seeing it. Why was there a five-month delay? Why could they only torture for five months? Why not longer? Why was it only a third of humankind that died? I mean, with an army as large as 200 million. I mean, Rome's army was only 125,000 soldiers, legionnaires, and there was another auxiliary about the same size. So, you know, Rome had an army of about 250,000 people. This is something that's hundreds and hundreds of times larger. You would think that an army that large would kill everybody, that nobody would be left standing that nobody would survive, that all would die. Why did God spare them? Why did God limit it? Why was God listening to the prayers of his people? It's because he's a God of compassion. He's a God of mercy. And we see his mercy even as these judgments unfold. And we also see God being God and that he's zealous for his people. He is zealous to save them and he is zealous to vindicate them and he is zealous to avenge them and nothing stops him from carrying out his loving faithfulness to his people. So when those trumpets blast, when those trumpets sound, that mighty heavenly orchestra, so as trumpets blow, yes, they're a call to battle. Jesus fights for first place in our lives and in our world. But it's also a call to worship. That instead of serving these demons and idols, we should serve the one true living God who's in charge, who's so compassionate, who's so sovereign, who's so zealous to do what's right and to love his people. We should serve him and him alone. There's one more thing that these trumpets do. In ancient times, when you heard a trumpet, you were either being called to battle or it was an act of worship or, and most likely this is what you would hear, it was a warning. 
a call to be awake, a call to be aware, a call to the alarm. It was sounding the alarm. In the middle of the night, a fire broke out. They would blow a trumpet, and everybody knew to wake up. It was the first siren. They would wake up, go fight the fire, go flee from your house that's on fire. Get out of town before the house burns down or the town burns up. If there was an enemy, if there were robbers, if there was any other threat like that, a terrible storm was coming, they would blow the trumpet, giving a warning so there would be time to escape, time to turn away, time to find shelter and safety, or time to fight the enemy. It was a warning. These trumpets are blowing one after another after another, long and loud, to warn us about three big things. They warn us about the true nature of judgment, the fact that God does judge sin. He will not tolerate sin. It is coming, and it is coming soon, and you need to get ready for it. It also warns us about the the nature of idolatry. The things that we serve, the things that we treasure, they're actually inspired by demons. So any other religion in this world, no matter how great their ethics may be, no matter how beautiful their liturgy may be, no matter how sincere their worshipers may be, if they've rejected Jesus Christ, they are animated by the forces of evil. And I say that not to be prideful, Or to think that I'm exalted or the Christian faith is somehow better than others. I'm not trying to say that at all. I'm saying that Jesus Christ is God. He alone is Lord. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And Jesus is the one who said that without me, you will not see the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's the only way. Everything else is a counterfeit. Everything else, even those that name the name of Christ or Christianity, if they've rejected Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and they reject his word, then they are a counterfeit. You need to understand and I need to understand that there's actually a demon behind all of that and we need to stand up to that and not give in to it. We also need to understand and it's a warning to remind us of the true nature of the human heart. When those trumpets sound, we see that judgment is coming and you need to get ready. And you see that really these demons are torturing the people that worship them. But we also see the true nature of our heart. You know, that star fell from heaven. He was given a key. He opened the the pit. And out of the pit came that terrible smoke and all those demonic locusts that tortured the people. There's a pit. There's an abyss in every single human heart. Jesus said it's out of the heart that we speak and we act. And when you see the pride and the rebellion and the idolatry of the people here in Revelation chapter 8 and 9, I actually see myself. I see my stubbornness. I see the Pharaoh down in the bottom of that pit. The rebel that I am by nature. And I have a hunch the rebel that you are by nature as well. You see, this passage is given to us, yes, to tell us about the future, but also to warn us today that we can't allow any idols in our lives. Is there anything that you're worshiping, anything that you're loyal to, anything that you love more than Jesus Christ? Is it your child? Is it your parents? 
Is it pleasure? Is it money? Is it your reputation? Is it your education? Is it your accomplishments and achievement? Is it your wealth? What is it that you're trusting in? And you go, well, I don't know that I worship those things. If those things are taken away from you, how would you feel? Could you let it go and say, you know, so be it? Say, lovey? Or would you say, ah, I'm crushed? And you would be absolutely depressed and demoralized with their absence. What's most important to you? Those are your idols. If there's anything that you love more than Jesus Christ, those are your idols. This passage is reminding us that even with all the judgment, the natural disasters, the demonic invasions, all these things taking place, these people refuse to surrender and repent and turn to God. They refuse to do that. And God keeps putting the pressure higher, 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 higher upon them, even showing mercy and compassion as he does that. And they refuse again and again and again and again to give in and surrender to God. This passage is a call to repent. What is repentance? Repentance is not just feeling sorry or feeling guilty about something bad I've done. It's a wholehearted, gut-wrenching, full surrender of making a U-turn from my idols and my sins and turning back to God and yielding to Him. And this passage reminds us that Jesus Christ will fight tooth and nail for first place in your life. You see, I can't imagine Jesus doing all of this. I mean, I see Him as the Savior on the cross, you know, humbling Himself and mercifully enduring all this suffering and doing it for me. And you see Him correctly. But remember what He said in Luke chapter 12, verse 49. Jesus said, I have come to throw fire upon the earth. And I've come to be baptized and how I long for that baptism to take place. He's not talking about when John the Baptist baptized him. He's talking about his own suffering of the fire of God's judgment on the cross. You see, Pharaoh He got his justice from Almighty God. He was crushed under the plagues that destroyed Egypt. Humanity will be destroyed in Revelation chapters 8 and 9 as those trumpet blasts are sounded. The judgments one after another, the plagues one after another will fall upon them. Warfare, natural disaster, all these calamities will fall and people will be given the choice just like Pharaoh and the Egyptians were given the choice. Will they repent and surrender to God or not? And Revelation says, just like Egypt struggled to repent, the people of humanity that's rejected God, they won't repent either in the future. And yet in Egypt, there was a way to escape the plagues and there was a way to escape the judgment. You had to have the blood of the Passover lamb on the door of your house. God would pass over you in judgment if you take that sacrificial lamb's blood and put it on the doorpost and lintel of your house. And if you stayed inside there, no one was harmed in your home. You escaped the judgment. You escaped the wrath of God. Your pride was humbled. 
Your arrogance was humbled. Your idolatry was smashed because you were saying, God, you alone are the one that can save us. We'll do what you say. We'll put the blood on the door. And you see, God is willing to pass over you in judgment because he did not pass over his son. And he brought his judgment on his son on the cross. So now you can humbly surrender to him. You can pull that Pharaoh down. You can fill up that abyss with God's grace and truth and love. He can change you and I from the inside out and make us the people that he created us to be, living in harmony with him and one another. Jesus fights for first place in your life and Revelation 8 and 9 shows you what happens when you don't give first place to Jesus. How it will destroy the human race. But I just want to say, you ain't seen nothing yet. It gets even worse. Christ fights, the Lamb fights for first place in your life and my life. Will you give it to Him? He won't take it from you. Will you give it to him? Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we read this passage and it's so hard. We're terrified. I mean, this is the stuff of nightmares. Horrific descriptions of your judgment beyond our comprehension, beyond our ability to imagine, let alone describe And yet these catastrophes, these natural disasters and this warfare is coming like we've never seen. Lord, I pray that you'd show us the folly of following the idols of our world. Lord, open our eyes to see any idols we may be worshiping. May we tear them down and surrender to you. While our heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I just want us to think about this for a minute. And I just want to ask you, what are the things that you treasure most in your life? The things you think about all the time. The things you obsess about. The things that you spend the majority of your money for. The most of your time for. The things that you value and treasure more than anything else. The things that if they were taken away from you, that it would actually totally crush you. Could those be your idols? They probably are. Would you be willing to just pull them off their pedestal and surrender them to God and say, God, I want to love you with everything that I have. I surrender to you now. Jesus fought so hard for you that he went to the cross and died in your place so that he could have first place in your heart. Would you surrender to him and live for him? Hear our prayers, O Lord. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.